Luke chapter 20 from verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, but those who are counted, uh, but nor can they die any more. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him any more. Let's pray once again. Lord, as we enter these waters, be our guard and our guide, we ask. May we not be shipwrecked on empty supposition. May we not be swept away by the currents of fears. May, by your grace, may we navigate safely to understand what Christ is saying and why, that we may draw great comfort and blessing from it. In Jesus' name, amen. So what happens when we die? Our ideas and perhaps our fears concerning the life which is to come say a great deal about us, about our values, about our priorities and about our principles. Many of the so-called world religions have their particular ideas of the afterlife. And if you want to understand what are the great things in the expectation of any of these idolatrous religions, you need only ask what is the expectation that they have of what happens when you die. But even as Christians, even as God's people, what we think about heaven tells us a lot about ourselves and our understanding of God and of his word. And it's this question of what happens when we die and what happens in the resurrection that is dominating this part of the history of Jesus Christ. The Sadducees have now turned up. 
Now, you may not have heard that name before. Most people who've read at least a bit of the Gospels, they've come across the Pharisees, the sort of, uh, well, the ultra-nationalistic, ultra-orthodox Jewish teachers. But the Sadducees, maybe you've heard the name, but you don't know a great deal about them. What's interesting here is that they turn up just after our Lord Jesus has been dealing with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not typically buddying up. Uh, the, the two wings of the Jewish nation. But they are essentially united in their antagonism to Jesus Christ. And it's as if here the Sadducees seem to be saying, well, the Pharisees couldn't take him down. Now it's our turn. You wait until we trip him up. We can sort these things out. Our Lord at this point is being subjected to relentless assaults on every front by enemy after enemy after enemy. So who then are the latest brigade who have come up against Jesus Christ? Well, the Sadducees, some suggest that they derived their lineage from the priest Zadok. They are aristocratic Jews. They typically have quite a strong hold upon the priesthood in the temple. They are known for being political operators of a high degree. They're, they're sort of movers and shakers, sometimes front of house and sometimes behind the scenes. Theologically, they are liberals. They are naturalists. They don't believe really in supernatural religion. They are materialists. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's what's told us here. They don't believe in the immortality of the soul. The issue then of a bodily resurrection is one that the Sadducees might easily seize upon as a way of trying to trip Jesus up. And so they come to him, and Luke just tells us so that we've got this in our minds, especially if we, we know the scene as we're now starting to understand it. Some of the Sadducees, these liberals who deny that there is a resurrection, come to Jesus and they're going to ask him a question. They're going to test him. Look first of all at the biblical background, because we need to understand that in order to appreciate the question. The biblical background comes first, then we're going to consider the fantastical story. Not just fantastic in the sense of it's, it's great and it's a fantasy, but it's fantastical. You know, it's, it's, it's a, I think it's actually a nonsense story with a cynical challenge. Then we need to look at the Lord's profound answer to this fantastical story and cynical challenge. And then the striking effect of that answer upon those who are around him. So the biblical background, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, did you know that that's what Moses said? The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are the books that were written by Moses. We sometimes call them the Pentateuch, Penta, the five. Uh, the Jews would have called them the Torah. And this has to do with a teaching in the books of Moses about what is sometimes called leveret marriage. And leveret comes from the idea of a son of a brother-in-law. So that means that marriage 
of a brother-in-law. And I'm just giving you some of this language because sometimes people try to bamboozle us with this, uh, this, these kinds of words or, or perhaps you're reading something more technical. So that's in the background. You'll find it, for example, in Genesis chapter 38, 8 to 10, with regard to a man called Onan, and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And the principle is this. A man and a woman marry. Suppose that the husband dies and the woman is left childless. Moses would have said that that man's brother should then take his widow as his wife. And the first child of that new relationship, another marriage, this is properly ordered, at the next marriage, the first child would have been considered the son and the heir of the man who had died. Okay, that makes sense? So this man dies without an heir. And remember in Israel, that the, the, the land that God has given them descends down through the family. So this man has died without an heir. And that part of the family might then end up without their proper inheritance in the land of God. So Moses said, well, let the brother-in-law marry the widow. And the first child becomes the heir of the man who had died without a child. And so the line is secure for the future. That's what Moses said. That's the biblical background. Once you understand that, hopefully then the challenge that they bring at least begins to make some kind of sense in terms of their own thinking. What's also significant is that they say Moses wrote to us. Because the Sadducees didn't have much time for anything but the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. As far as they were concerned, those were the reliable scriptures. That was unique authority. If Moses said it, then we need to take it seriously. All right? So the Sadducees, the Moses men in this particular sense, oh, these, these other things, the, 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 uh, the teachings that the Pharisees get caught up in, the, uh, the, the discussions and debates about the later parts. Now, we're, we're above all that. We are those who take Moses seriously. And we want to ask about this issue of leveret or brother-in-law marriage. And so we come to this fantastical story and the cynical challenge. So with that in your minds, here's the story. There were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died childless. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. And last of all, the woman died also. Now their contempt is revealed in the story that they tell. It's possible, isn't it? It may even be that... Uh, there's a, what's called an apocryphal book, the book of Tobit, that has a similar story in it. Maybe somewhere there were seven brothers, and maybe one of them took a wife, and maybe they all died childless, and the wife had married each one of them in succession before she herself died. But I think it's more likely this is a story that is told just to set up what the Sadducees think is the ridiculousness of the whole situation. And it's not really a new attitude, is it? 
These are some of the kinds of reasonings that we often come up against from materialists today. They've already decided that the supernatural is a nonsense. They already know that the Bible can't be relied upon. And so, well, imagine this or suppose that. Or what do you say to these things? There's a sneer. And they're setting you up for a fall. So, two husbands would have made the point, wouldn't they? You only need two husbands in this story and it makes enough sense as it is. But no, they're going to ramp it up. They're going to lay it on thick. There are seven brothers here. And one after the other, they marry this particular woman. It's extravagant. After a while, it becomes absurd. By the end, it's grotesque. It's actually quite distasteful. One commentator says, I don't know any woman who could survive being married to seven men. (laughs) You've got the successive deaths of these men. And then the wife. And at no point is there any child. The children aren't really relevant here, at least in terms of the Sadducees' story. That The point is that this one woman has been married seven times. I think perhaps even as we think of the story, we perhaps need to be careful with some of the ways that we sometimes ask our questions. Suppose that this were to happen. What, what about if this were to take place? Now, sometimes that's not wrong, those what-if questions or those suppose-that questions. But sometimes we're intruding in things that we, we don't know about. And sometimes we've had challenges from people. People who perhaps wanted to test the waters in the congregation. You may have heard these yourself. You may not have come up against them. But but sometimes, uh, as one of the elders, someone would say, "Okay, so you know, I'm 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 under these circumstances now. But suppose, suppose that I got married, and suppose that my wife came from such and such a place, and suppose then that we had children that were like this, and suppose one of those children, then what would you do with this way that you conduct yourselves as a church?" After thought, so when that happens, come back to me and we'll work it all out. But why are you making up problems or spinning out issues that could be a thousand, thousand miles away? That's just not relevant. That's just not a concern. We can deal with some of these things if and when they come to pass. So let's just be careful generally that we don't tie ourselves in knots with the what ifs or tie one another in knots with the suppose that's. Sometimes when we're upstairs in the upper room, you boys go, what would happen if this were the case? Or suppose this. Some of those are good questions. But some of those are things that God just hasn't chosen to reveal or that we don't need to worry about. Anyway, you've got this fantastical story. I'm not trying to put any of those questions necessarily in the same category as this Sadducee stories. One bride for seven brothers. But it's all a setup. That's the point. Suppose this one woman with these seven men, one after the other, and in every case the man dies childless, and now the woman's dead as well. Now, here's the clincher. This is the the cynical challenge. In the resurrection, now bear in mind, remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. So this this is just designed to muck this all up. And again, this is the kind of argument that we often get. You don't even believe in it. Why are you worried about it? But here we are. In the resurrection, 
Whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. And it's designed to seem ridiculous. In their minds, it just shows the impossibility of this bodily resurrection. Because then you'd run into all these kinds of problems. She's got seven husbands. Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Isn't it absurd? Isn't this stupid? What a nonsense. Now, it is the way they present it. And we, again, need to be careful here. Because while we might say the Sadducees shouldn't have asked that question and they shouldn't have asked that question in the spirit in which they asked it, there aren't many Christians, true believers, who have profound questions and concerns about this and similar things. What happens when I die? The husband who dying says to his wife, you're not to marry again, you're my wife. Why? What do you think is going to happen in the resurrection? The woman who tongue-in-cheek threatens her husband that if he marries somebody else, she's going to come back and haunt him. The fear about whether we'll know one another in heaven. Perhaps you've spent your life married to somebody. You've, you've racked up not just the years, but the decades and you'd read something and think, well, does it all fall apart? Is it, is it all point? Why? What? How? How do we relate to one another? What about children? What kind of bodies do we have? What about marriage? What about remarriage? What is the nature of things in the resurrection? And so while we recognize the foolishness and the emptiness of the way the Sadducees set this up, it's worth bearing in mind that there are questions for us here that are raised by the question that the Sadducees ask. We don't need this fantastical story. There are circumstances that might raise the same kinds of questions and issues. How would you have answered? Have you ever thought that as you've read through some of the challenges from the people, the scribes, the Pharisees, and now the Sadducees? What if you were put on the spot like this? You're witnessing on the streets, you've knocked on the door, you're talking to a friend. Somebody throws one of these real curve balls at you. Again, we marvel. Right there, right then, Jesus answered. And as ever, God in the flesh, the eternal Son who's taken our nature to himself, the man whose ear has been awakened morning by morning to hear the truth of God. He answers with wisdom and with clarity. I hope you're getting used to that, but I hope you're not getting tired of that. Christ invariably has the right words to say at the right time. Their errors are about what's really permanent and what's really temporary. They just don't understand what they're asking questions about. And so our Lord gives them a particular clarification. He's going to make something clear because they haven't got it. And then he's going to give them a general confirmation. He's going to teach them something about the way things will always be. Here's the clarification. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age, the age which is to come, and the resurrection from the dead, 
They neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. What have the Pharisees got wrong? They've made the mistake of assuming that the present and the post-resurrection periods are identical, that everything then would be as it is now. Now, remember, they don't even believe in the resurrection. And actually, if this is what they thought it was, you might say, well, why would you? You've got it all wrong. You're assuming that all things will continue in the same way that they always have. You're assuming that there's going to be marriage in the new heavens and in the new earth in the same way that there's marriage in this heavens and this earth. You're assuming that there's going to be monogamy in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's polygamy in the new heavens and the new earth, but that this monogamous relationship that's existed here, one man, one woman, bound together in covenant before God, is going to be identical in the resurrection. And the way that you're thinking makes it all ridiculous. If you were right, this would be foolish. Where, though? He might have asked, where do you find these things in your Bibles? Our Lord draws a contrast between this age and the age to come. And he says, if you really understood the difference between what now is and what will be, you wouldn't have this dilemma at all. First of all, he points out that not everybody is going to enter this happy state. Those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection of the dead those whom God favours with these things those whom God in his wisdom and in his grace brings into this condition so we're talking particularly now about God's people in the resurrection which is also important to take into account now who is worthy to attain the age to come Our Lord doesn't state it explicitly here, but there's none worthy in themselves. These are the ones upon whom God has set his love. These are the ones who belong to Jesus Christ. These are the ones who are clothed in his righteousness. They are the ones who will enter into this resurrection unto life and glory. And those whom God has bestowed this worthiness upon those to whom the Lord God of heaven has given this gift, they are not going to be the same in the resurrection. There is no marriage in the world which is to come. Whatever marriage promises, whatever marriage declares, whatever foretaste of the heavenly bliss there is in the marriage relationship, that is going to be fulfilled in the glory which is to come. And there's no death now, one of the reasons why God has given marriage is for children, procreation. Is there going to be anybody missing in the new heavens and the new earth? Everyone's already there. You don't need marriage for more children when all God's children are already present and correct. Everything has been fulfilled. And there, all those whom God has brought into his kingdom and glory, they are going to be like or equal to the angels. Now again, how many people are oh, there with the angels? They're an angel now. 
That's not what our Lord says. He doesn't say we become angels when we die. We don't. We're human beings. We're a different order of creation. But in some way we become like or equal to the angels. And we are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now this son language... This refers to nature and identity. In that world to come, by the gift of God in his mercy, there is going to be a new order of existence. We will be recognisably ourselves, but not like ourselves any longer. You think of the post-resurrection body of Jesus Christ. When he rose again from the dead, and when he came back to his disciples, did they recognise him? Yes, it's Jesus. Could they see the marks that were left in his hands and in his side and in his feet? Yes, there was something in his post-resurrection, after-resurrection body that demonstrated that there was a measure of continuity. When Moses and Elijah were with the Lord on the mountain of transfiguration, in some way the disciples knew who they were. Our Lord is not saying that there's no gender in the new heaven and the new earth. You're going to be male and female, because that's the way God made you. Our Lord is not saying that we're going to forget the relationships that we have in this life in the new heavens and the new earth, and that's significant. I mean, what would heaven be if you didn't know that we were going to be here? Part of the glory of heaven is being there with one another in the presence of our God and our Saviour. That's part of the joy, that when we walk together upon earth, we will walk together in the new heavens and the new earth. What is our Lord's point? That the Sadducees are confused, ignorant about the resurrection body, about resurrection life, about resurrection relationships. You're assuming, he says, that in the world to come, it's going to be just like this. That people will marry and be given in marriage. That people will, will live on in precisely the same way as they do. And that they'll have to have precisely the same relationships there as they do now. But the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage that's for now that's here but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead they don't marry and they're not given in marriage those relationships no longer sustain and they can't die anymore for they are equal to the angels and are sons of god being sons of the resurrection so far, the Lord has simply said to these men, you've got the wrong idea entirely. You don't understand about the resurrection of the dead. But our Lord, as he does again and again, he's not left on the back foot. He now steps forward and he gives them positive teaching, a general confirmation. But even Moses. Why is that important? Because if Moses says it, they've got to take it seriously. After all, they're the Sadducees. They're the men who say, we will listen to the first five books of the Bible. Even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. 
So he's saying, do you even know what you say you know? Do you actually believe what you say you believe? Even Moses showed in the bush that the dead are raised. Now, why does our Lord speak like that? Just so you know, our chapters and our verses, they're recent. For years and years and years, there were no chapters and verses in the Bible. So how do you explain to someone what you're talking about? Well, in the creation, or at the bush, or at the flood, or with the patriarchs. So our Lord isn't going to say, you turn to Exodus chapter whatever and verse this. He's going to say, now Moses said in the bush. Think about that bit in the Bible where Moses is at the burning bush, where the Lord revealed himself to Moses in his glory there on the edge of the wilderness. Let's go back to that, says our Lord Jesus Christ, and let's consider what the Lord God himself reveals to Moses. And it's quite wonderful that in that passage, Moses speaks of God. He records the very words of God. And this is how God makes himself known. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, or if you like, where Moses in the bush says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What's remarkable is that as that conversation between the living God and this man Moses proceeds, God shows more of himself to Moses. And it's significant. God reveals his name as the I am that I am. This is Yahweh. This is the eternal God. This is the self-existent creator of all things. The God who lives above time, who eternally, infinitely, gloriously exists the I am says I am the God of Abraham I am the God of Isaac I am the God of Jacob and when he goes back to Israel he is to declare that the I am has sent him the Lord God of your fathers the God of Abraham of Isaac and of Jacob the Lord God of your fathers the God of Abraham the God of Isaac the God of Jacob over and over again at the bush God makes himself known as the I am who is Abraham's God now Isaac's God now Jacob's God now and Abraham's been dead for centuries and Isaac for not many less and Jacob for a few less still but Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as far as the wisdom of the world goes they are gone but the God of heaven speaks of himself in a present permanent relationship to those who have died not I was Abraham's God and that didn't go so well and then I tried Isaac and he's gone too and then Jacob but that didn't work out now I'm with you Moses let's see how this goes no Moses I am here because I made promises to Abraham I made promises to Isaac. I made promises to Jacob. 
I am, and I am their God. I was their God, I am now their God, and I ever shall be their God. This is the language of covenant reality and covenant relationship. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they have everlasting life. They're not lost. They're not gone and gone for good. They live in relation to God. After all, is he not the God of the living? And all live it to him. Again, it's most likely, it seems, that the Lord is speaking to those who belong to him. All their life is to him. It centres upon him. They exist in relation to him. When God spoke from the burning bush, all those years after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, according to their flesh, had died, he could speak to their successor, Moses. I am still Abraham's God. And Abraham is still mine. I am still the fear of Isaac. And Isaac is still mine. I am still the defender of Jacob. And Jacob is still mine. And they are alive. Yes, their bodies may lie in their graves, but they are with me in their souls. They are in the divine presence and they are awaiting the glory which is to come. See, it's not even the fact that, well, the body's in the grave and that's over and now their souls are with Jesus and maybe that will work out or with God and that will work out. No, God made promises, didn't he? Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. You're going to see your descendants like the sand upon the seashore, like the stars in the sky. How did Abraham live? What does Hebrews tell us? Abraham lived in faith, didn't he? Here we have no continuing city. We seek the one which is to come. What happened Let's get right down to the, the nitty-gritty. What happened when the God of Abraham, having given Abraham the longed-for son of promise, Isaac, said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son on Mount Moriah. When Abraham, in obedience to God, lifted the knife to bring it down on Isaac, contrary to everything he knew God was, not understanding perhaps everything he'd been called to do, what made Abraham obey? What did he believe about God? Knowing that God could raise him from the dead. Abraham believed in God, the resurrector. Abraham lived and died. Not just with regard to himself, but even down to the prospect of his own son dying at his own hand before his eyes. No, if this is what God requires, God can bring him back. And Abraham died with Isaac and Jacob in their turn. Remember Hebrews? He died in hope. 
This was not the end. This Canaan on earth, this is not our final destination. This is not as good as it gets. There is a glory still to come. Abraham died and the God of Abraham took him. And then Isaac died and the God of Abraham kept him. And then Jacob died and the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob took him. And they will come again. And if there's no resurrection, then everything God said to them is empty. And his self-revelation to Moses is a nonsense. You Sadducees, says our Lord, what did God say to Moses? I am the God of Abraham now. I am the God of Isaac now. I am the God of Jacob still. It just so happened that I read Exodus 3 as part of my Bible readings this morning. My wife will tell you, she went elbow in the ribs. I thought it was just chapter 3 and verse 6. No, sweetheart, over and over again, three times, and right there with the I am, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's insistent here. It's written right here over and over again. How do we miss it? Brothers and sisters, doesn't this change the way we can and should read our Old Testaments? Are you reading not only Moses but the prophets? When did you last read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy? Have you pressed on Joshua, Judges and Ruth and the histories, the Samuels and the Kings and the Chronicles and then on through the great and the small prophets, longer and shorter? Do we understand the weight of the words that we are reading here? Brothers and sisters, if we read deep, what joys and what comforts are here? I am the God of Abraham, yeah? No, I am the God of Abraham, says the living and true God. And Abraham belongs to me now and always. And the same for Isaac, and the same for Jacob, and the same Moses for you in your turn. And the same for all who belong to me. Brothers and sisters, we believe in verbal inspiration. We believe that every word matters. Even the fact that he doesn't say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Sometimes that is how he's described. But that lovely note of personal relationship with each of them individually. I am his God. I am his God. And I am his God. And that should echo down into your soul and mine. If you are one of God's people, you can say, and he is now and ever will be my God also. This is where Christ's comforts and Christ's truths come alive. What a wonder for us that the eternal God has given everlasting life to those who belong to him. What comfort and joy. Who is your God? My friends, he is the God of the living and we live to him if we are his. Will you attain to these things? Can you speak in this way? Have you been made because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith in him, worthy to attain to the resurrection which is to come, the resurrection unto life, the resurrection to glory, to be a son of God and the son of the resurrection? that you will be able to say in eternity future, that ridiculous phrase that we use to try and describe what lies ahead, 
that he will always say, I am the God of this one and that one and the other one. That now you can say, the I am is my God. That when you come to die, you'll be able to say, the I am is my God. That when you are in the presence of Jesus Christ and your body is still in the grave, you'll be able to say, the I am is now my God. And when the resurrection morning dawns and you stand clothed again in glory like that of Jesus Christ's, you will each one who know him say, I am is my God. And you won't be saying in that day, now who's with who? Who's, whose husband is that? Whose wife is that? You may stand together for your Christian husband, Christian wife, Christian father, Christian mother, Christian child, brothers and sisters, and we'll know one another. And there'll be aspects of our present relationships that have passed away. Not in the sense that we'll be missing out on anything. But everything that is now a shadow, everything now that is a taste, everything now in that marriage relationship that points in some way, to some degree, the hint of a shade of a shadow of the day when the great heavenly bridegroom comes to bring all his people to himself, the bride of Christ, united now to him, him rejoicing over his people. Everything shadow will be light. Every pointing finger toward the glory that will be that is to come is going to be seen in all its fullness. If you're going to be there, my friend, you must come in Christ Jesus, and then your joy will be full. You Sadducees. Our Lord says you really don't understand the resurrection, do you? Even in your own estimation, you've completely misunderstood what happens when bodies rise again from the grave. And what you haven't at all grasped is the fact that the God of whom you speak is the God of the living. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. I bet they did. <laughs> the wisdom of Christ when Satan tempts him. Drawing from the depths of Deuteronomy. The wisdom of Christ when the Pharisees charge him. Taking from the Psalms. The wisdom of Christ when the Sadducees assault him. Haven't you read your Moses? Don't you know what he says? I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. This scribe probably is a Pharisee. And he's loving the fact that the Lord has now got one up on the Sadducees as well. Is this grudging appreciation? You've spoken well. Or perhaps this is a man who's starting to see something of the shining wisdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Teacher, you are speaking well. 
you are spoken you have spoken well you are seeing truth you know this god maybe the light dawns as the scribe hears the wisdom and the truth that fall from the lips of the king of kings but not just praise there's fear after that they dared not question him any more and that probably doesn't just refer to the Sadducees, probably refers to the Pharisees and everybody else who's lined up against him. See, they've thrown everything against Jesus up to this point. They've challenged him with regard to who he is and challenged him with regard to what he does. They've tried to challenge him politically. They've tried to challenge him theologically. From the two extremes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everyone in between, they have thrown their best against him. And they've all been sent packing, firmly, graciously, sometimes in the right sense, humiliatingly. And Christ now stands. Who else will you send? Anyone else? Anyone else going to test me? Anybody else going to come with a challenge against me? Do you have anything else to say? No, the Lord has bested the field. The fiercest, nastiest, cruelest and cleverest of his enemies have all come to nothing. All those who've made their claims, we know best, we can lead, we can guide. And they've all been exposed and brought to nothing by Jesus of Nazareth. My friends, who has wisdom to teach you? Who has wisdom to lead his people? Who can you trust upon to be your guard and your guide? Not the Pharisees. Not the Sadducees. Not the materialists. Who will you trust? Who will you follow? There's only one man left standing here, Jesus of Nazareth. And what is striking is that he preeminently is the man who knows and anticipates the resurrection which is to come and lives accordingly. This is not a theory to the Lord Jesus Christ. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How will he go to the cross? He believes in the God of the resurrection. For the joy that is set before him, he endures the pain, he despises the shame, that he may sit down at the right hand of God. Jesus himself is the one in whom there is life. Jesus himself trusts in the God of the living. Promises have been made to him that can only be true if God raises the dead. He will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He will come into the presence of his father and he will say, here I am and the children that you have given me. And promises have been made to you, Christian. Your God is the God of the living. And if you are living in him, there is enough in what he has said 
enough in what he has done, enough in who he is in relation to you, for all who trust in him to be truly happy and gloriously hopeful. Amen.